0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 115, The Rise of Bulgaria. So far in these end-of-the-century episodes, we've focused on a tripartite division of the Roman world. Franks in the west, Abbasids in the east, and Byzantium in the middle. In the case of the two former empires... A similar process took place across the 9th century. Their cultural dominance was embedded in the soil of their domains, while central political authority collapsed. One way of looking at the Roman Empire would be to say that it bucked this trend. Constantinople retained complete control of its lands and saw a recovery of economic, cultural and military capital. But looked at a different way, one could argue that the Romans actually experienced something similar to its two neighbours. Not in Anatolia, but in the Balkans. The whole area had once been Roman, and hopes remained throughout the centuries that one day it could be reincorporated. Whether they knew it or not, by the end of the ninth century, this dream was over. The people of the Balkans would never see themselves as Romans again. Like the different pieces of the caliphate, they had absorbed the culture of the centre, but now forged their own political path. Let's remind ourselves of the narrative. Back in 802 AD, our perception of the Bulgars was of a steppe nomad elite ruling over Slav and ex-Roman peasants. Certainly, the Romans believed the Bulgars to be backwards and uncivilised. When Nicephorus's army reached Pliska in 811, they found a wooden palace with tents and other wooden buildings surrounding it. Presumably, this fed their sense of overconfidence as they blundered into a massacre. I believe that that defeat was one of the turning points in our podcast story. Had Nicephorus retreated after burning Pliska, and then spent a decade hunting crumb down, Bulgaria may never have come to be. It wouldn't have been easy by any means, but it's just possible that the Bulgars could have been broken, leaving the people of the Balkans without a serious alternative to Roman influence. But that's not what happened was victorious and spent the next few years devastating Thrace. When he died, he was apparently gathering siege engines to have a crack at the Theodosian walls. Probably, the Khan knew that a siege would never succeed. What he wanted was a definitive peace treaty, one that acknowledged the Bulgars' right to exist, one with permanent borders and trading posts and rules. Rules that would help prevent the Byzantines from attacking his people whenever it suited them. His successor, Omotarg, would get that treaty, but, and this is the significant part, only after the Romans had won a battle against him. You may remember that Leo the Armenian ambushed a Bulgar force on the border and claimed it as proof that God was on his side. Only with Roman pride, sort of, restored could the emperor make a treaty. To grant peace after being defeated contradicted centuries of propaganda that saw barbarian success as merely temporary setbacks. An emperor who accepted defeat as the status quo was undermining his own reason for being. This was the centuries-long stalemate between the two sides. The Bulgars could never take Constantinople, and so they couldn't force peace on their terms. The Romans were similarly unable to command victory because the bulk of their forces were always stationed in Anatolia. The Bulgars could never rest easy with this situation. The empire loomed like a volcano in the distance. It was silent now, but it has the power to destroy us. Not just with its armies and fleet, but with its steppe allies, the Magyars and Khazars beyond the Danube. Though we know the Battle of Pliska was a major Bulgar victory, we shouldn't forget the damage the Romans had done. The Bulgar capital had been burnt to the ground, their people and livestock slaughtered. They had come very close to being wiped out. Omatag signed a 30-year peace treaty, but instead of seeing it as mission accomplished, he knew the hard work had just begun. He and his successors would aim to create a state which was much tougher, which had roots that could not easily be torn up one which the Byzantines in particular would be forced to respect. Unfortunately for us, we have no Bulgar histories to draw on for this period. We are forced to rely on the biased Byzantines and the distant Franks. However, the broad outlines of this century of progress are clear. The first aim was to expand Bulgar control across more of the Balkans. Crum's victories had already restored the border with Byzantium to south of the Hemus Mountains, and he'd enjoyed raiding north of the Danube after the collapse of the Avars. Bulgar occupation of those lands did not last long, but the fall of the Avars allowed them to push west along the south of the river, occupying towns and fortresses and extending their dominion, over the Slavs that lived there. Next, the Bulgars pushed southwest into the old Roman provinces of Moesia and Macedonia. And this was historic Macedonia, the mountainous land to the north of Greece, as opposed to the Byzantine theme of Macedonia, which was not far from Constantinople. Omitag and his two successors campaigned hard throughout the middle of the century to bring the Slavs, Romans, and various other peoples of this area under their control. I've posted a map with this episode to show the extent of their domains. This expansion meant that Romania and Bulgaria now shared a long border running all the way from Thrace to Greece, which you might think would provoke the empire into action, But the Bulgars made no move toward the Roman themes, and in fact much of their activity would have been off the empire's radar. The hard work was intimidating the Slav tribes into submission, and then ensuring their future cooperation with the Khan's appointed governor. Because of our sources, we are better informed about where the Bulgar advance was halted than where it succeeded. As Omotarg's forces pushed west, they encountered serious resistance in the mountains, the old Roman provinces of Pannonia and Dacia, as in the Dacia south of the Danube. The Slav tribes they found there were under the influence of the East Frankish kingdom, prompting Omotarg to send an embassy west to discuss the border. The Frankish king largely ignored him, and some kind of military confrontation took place The Bulgars seem to have been the losers, but they did get acceptance from the Franks for their control of the nearer Slav tribes. Further south, well away from the Danube, attempts to cross the mountains were resisted by the Serbs. It's not relevant to us today to discuss the origins of the Serbs and their neighbours, the Croats, but by 900 AD, both peoples had coalesced into recognisable kingdoms. The Croats occupied the far northwest of the Balkans, Dalmatia, roughly the same area as modern Croatia. The Serbs were at this time further south, in modern Bosnia and Herzegovina. Both states were made up of independent tribes that had banded together due to external pressure. The Croats shared a border with Italy and the Franks, so had elected a prince and begun to organize themselves earlier in the century. The Serb tribes only responded now, when Bulgar aggression prompted it. They pulled their resources and used their mastery of the mountain passes to keep Omatag at bay. At least nominally then, the Bulgars now controlled the majority of the Balkans. They even had access to the Adriatic at a port near Dyrrhachium. Omotarg was proactive during his time in office, but his successors, may well have continued campaigns that he began. I keep referring to Omotarg's successors because we know so little about them. Omotarg died in 831, next in line Malamir seems to have ruled for the next five years, and he was followed by Presian, who ruled for 16 more up to 852. Omitag also got the ball rolling on administrative changes and construction work. He rebuilt Pliska in stone, raised up a palace for himself on the Danube, and fortified many of the new strongholds he'd acquired. He also pushed forward with plans to reform the administration of the Carnate, which Crum seems to have begun. The tribal system of strict hierarchy based on ancestry had its limitations, The leaders of each tribe were known as boyars and they were naturally competitive with one another for power and wealth and not to mention for the right to become Khan themselves. Krum and Omatag found this limiting. They wanted to appoint men loyal to them to key positions and not to have to rely on whoever's turn it was. The sensibilities of the elite could not be rudely trampled on but it seems that as the Khanate expanded, opportunities opened up to appoint more regional governors and army commanders, posts which could be filled with loyal candidates, sometimes Slavs or ex-Romans of proven worth. We have to be vague about this because our knowledge is so limited. Between Omotarg's battle with Thomas the Slav in 822 and Boris's request to be baptised in 863, we are largely in the dark. The lights start to come back on with Boris, who ruled from 852 to 889. He would play Constantine to Omitag's Diocletian by not only continuing his reforms, but converting the Carnate to Christianity. The suggestion that the Bulgars convert initially came from the Franks. In the spirit of Charlemagne, the East Franks pushed for their pagan neighbours to accept the one true god. Early in Boris's reign, he joined forces with the Franks to attack the kingdom of Moravia. Moravia is the land around the Morava River, separating modern Slovakia from the Czech Republic and Austria. It therefore lay just on the other side of the Danube, sandwiched between the Bulgars and Bohemia. It was ethnically Slav and pagan, and was coming under pressure to not only tow the Frankish line, but to convert to Christianity. The Franks were happy to use the Bulgars to increase this pressure, but also suggested that they would make better friends if they were all of one faith. Boris, though, had many good reasons to consider this dramatic move. I mentioned in the narrative that his sister had spent time in Constantinople and seems to have converted, while he was also close to a Byzantine monk who worked at Pliska. Last episode, we saw how slave traders preyed on the Slavs because as pagans they were acceptable targets. There was also internal pressure – because so many of the Khan's subjects were already Christians. Many captives and defectors taken by Krum had been given new homes, and as the Bulgars pushed west, they encountered semi-Roman towns who'd lived alongside the Slavs for centuries, spreading the faith. Probably the clinching argument, though, was the political reality of what conversion meant, both internally and Externally. Becoming a Christian state would put the Bulgars on a more even footing with their powerful neighbours. They were starting to feel surrounded, not just the Franks and Byzantines, but the Magyars and other steppe tribes to the north were beginning to push west. And those tribes were usually on good terms with the Romans. If the Bulgars established a respectable Christian kingdom, Boris believed they would no longer be viewed as expendable heathens. Internally, conversion to Christianity would bring the unity which the Khans craved. Their domains incorporated a wide variety of peoples who had little loyalty towards Pliska, or to one another. Worship of a sky god who honours the tribes of the grasslands wasn't a belief system that could be exported to the settled residents of the Balkans whereas Christianity had shown itself adept at meeting the spiritual needs of different nations. Christian teaching would also reinforce the authority of the Khan. The newly conquered Slav tribes were naturally cynical about demands for money and manpower from their Bulgar overlords, but when their God-chosen sovereign asked for obedience, it would be their duty to comply. We covered many of the details of what happened next in the narrative. The popes and patriarchs squabbled over jurisdiction of the new church, and in the end, the military proximity of Byzantium ensured that it would be their liturgy which the Bulgars received. At the same time, though, their preoccupation with Anatolia allowed Boris to get an independent archbishop who would live in Pliska under his supervision. Boris emerges from this process as a brilliant politician. Two incidents in particular demonstrate the double-sided coin of statesmanship. Shortly after he accepted baptism, a group of Boris' boyars rose in rebellion. Christianity would destroy their traditional political rights as well as their religion. Boris crushed them brutally, killing the rebels and their families. This deeply unchristian act was a boon to his plans. It removed almost all organised opposition to his new policy at a stroke. At the same time, Boris showed genuine care for his people's conversion. He had many, many questions about Christianity and how it could fit in with the existing culture. He wrote to both Photius and Pope Nicholas, and from the latter received a helpful reply. The Bulgars were run by a military aristocracy, and Boris was aware of the contradiction between love for the Prince of Peace and the needs of war. So he asks, Can one fight during Lent? What should men do if they are attacked while at prayer? Should I still execute men who abandon their post or flee from battle? This concern extends to all sorts of practical questions about being a Christian head of state. Must I forgive thieves, murderers and adulterers? Can I torture those with vital information? Can criminals claim asylum in a church? How should I treat recalcitrant pagans? Rather than announce his baptism and expect his people to figure out the rest for themselves, Boris left no stone unturned in the search for accurate but practical solutions. Boris built many churches and monasteries across Bulgaria, including seven cathedrals. He also began work on a law code for his people. He was aided in this project inadvertently by the Byzantines. For it was they who provided him with a new language which would further unite his people and aid their understanding of church and state. Back in the 860s, Prince Rastislav of Moravia was under a huge amount of pressure. As we discussed, he had the Franks breathing down his neck and the Bulgars attacking from the south. Frankish clergy had already begun missionary work amongst his people. His fear was that if he converted, Moravia would become a de facto Frankish province. So he wrote to Constantinople asking them to send missionaries. His logic was that if he converted to Byzantine orthodoxy, he would make his people Christian but avoid Frankish dominance. It was the same thought process that led Boris to look the other way and court the Pope to combat Byzantine influence. Photius was happy to oblige and asked two brothers, Cyril and Methodius, to make the journey. They had grown up in Thessalonica, where they spoke the language of the local Slavs. It's been suggested that they may have had a Slavic mother, their father was a military officer, but it seems just as likely that many Thessalonicans spoke the local Slavic dialect. Slav tribes had been in the area for 300 years. It's not surprising to find the two sides had learnt to communicate In each other's tongue. Both men were already fine linguists. Constantine had mastered Hebrew and served on embassies to the Khazars and the Caliphate, and both were living in a monastery on Mount Olympus when Photius tapped them up to take on this journey. To aid them in converting the people of Moravia, they began to work on a Slavic translation of key Bible passages and parts of the liturgy. Most church services would be held in Greek, but it seemed only right to help ease new converts in by providing them with the basics of the faith in words they could understand. The two brothers created a new alphabet, known to us as glagolitic, to express the Slavic tongue. Their translations seem to have been completed within a year, which suggests they may have already been working on it for some time. As you might imagine, their knowledge of the local vernacular did not extend to complicated theological terms, so they imposed upon the new language a large number of Greek words and Greek grammatical structure. As impressive an achievement as this was, this language wasn't the same Slavic dialect which the local Moravians spoke. Undeterred, the two brothers got to work as soon as they arrived, preaching the gospel. Soon afterwards, though, the Frankish missionaries, irked by the new arrivals, complained to the Pope. One of the accusations levelled ...against the Byzantines was that the Bible should not be translated into other languages. It had long been convention in the West that only Greek, Latin and Hebrew constituted holy languages. But the Byzantine experience of missionary work was far more varied than that of the Franks. Methodius pointed out that many people already had their own biblical translations... Armenian, Syriac, Coptic, Persian, Gothic, and so on, falls not God's reign upon all equally, and shines not the sun also upon all, he supposedly said. Pope Hadrian was convinced and approved of the brothers' work as long as the Moravian Church remained under his jurisdiction, which the brothers had no problem with, Moravia was a peripheral concern to Constantinople. Photius was happy to oblige by sending missionaries, but it wasn't a government project as such. No mention of the brothers' mission appears in the Byzantine histories, despite the impact it would have. The two brothers had travelled to Rome to make their case, and while there... Cyril passed away. But Methodius returned to Moravia and continued their work. He trained many students over the next few years who would continue to work in the language which we now know as Old Church Slavonic. By 870, though, Rastislav was overthrown in a pro-Frankish coup. Methodius continued to lead his church but had to defend himself against repeated attempts to expel him. When he died in the mid-880s, his enemies succeeded, and his brethren were either exiled or imprisoned. Those who escaped sailed down the Danube and met with Boris. Two decades on from his conversion, Boris's Christian project had its problems the main one being that his clergy were trained in Constantinople and preached in Greek. The masses were therefore struggling to comprehend all aspects of the new religion, and resentment of the foreign Byzantine clergy was strong in some quarters. The arrival of missionaries armed with Slavic translations of the scripture and liturgy was a godsend. Boris welcomed them with open arms and saw in the new language the perfect way to unite his people and free them from Byzantine control. The two leading clerics in this movement were Clement and Naum. Clement was sent to Lake Ohrid in Macedonia, where the Greek clergy hadn't been operating. Clement would work tirelessly to train a new Bulgarian clergy. They would preach to the local Slavs, the people whose dialect inspired the new alphabet in words they fully understood. Naum stayed at the capital near Boris. His students began working on an improved alphabet for the new written Slavic language. The drawback of Glagolitic was that the letters had been made up from scratch and so were hard to teach. The new alphabet was heavily influenced by Greek letters, which allowed those who were bilingual or only knew the Roman language to pick it up far more quickly. The new creation was named after St. Cyril, who died back in Rome and is today known as Cyrillic or Kyrillic. It would become the base alphabet for the development of the Macedonian, Russian and Serbian languages down the line. It was this written language which gave the Bulgars the final piece of the puzzle in creating a Bulgarian people. It can't have been an easy decision. The leadership of the Bulgars still presumably spoke the language they'd brought with them from the steppes, and many spoke Greek because it had been the obvious written language to use for hundreds of years. However, the Slavs had proven hard to corral They occupied far-off mountain peaks and river valleys. This was such a useful tool to bring them all together. Today, less than a dozen Bulgar words survive in the modern Bulgarian language. The Slavicization was the price Boris chose to pay to unite his realm and prevent it from being absorbed by the Byzantines. Though they had taken much from the culture of Constantinople, there was no danger of them becoming Roman. Boris was overseeing a fusion between his three main peoples, Slavic-speaking, Roman-praying, Bulgar-ruling. Within a few generations, these distinctions would start to disappear, and children would simply see themselves as Bulgarians. At a council in 893, many of these changes were formally ratified. Boris's successor Simeon was installed, Christianity was confirmed as the state religion, Old Church Slavonic was to be the language of church and state. And the capital was moved to Preslav, a few miles southwest of Pliska. A little like the founding of Constantinople, it was to be a fresh Christian city, and it would house the new state. A law code appeared around this time too, heavily influenced by the Byzantine Ekloyi. None of this happened overnight, of course. By 912 AD, there were still many who didn't think of themselves as Bulgarian, and plenty who couldn't read or hadn't yet been to church. But with each year, the new foundations of the Bulgarian state were strengthening. The Bulgars were blessed during this century with exceptional leadership. From Krum's military might to Omotarg's aggression, Boris's brilliant vision, and finally his son Simeon. As you may recall, Simeon was a consummate statesman himself, he quickly overcame a Byzantine Magyar invasion, turned the tables, and got a peace treaty more to his liking. Then when Thessalonica was sacked by an Arab fleet, he marched down to the gates in order to further improve his bargaining position. When our narrative resumes, Simeon will reenact much of the devastation which Crumb wrought a century before, all in search of that same elusive goal. Recognition from Constantinople for his people's right to exist. I'm afraid he will eventually be disappointed. War between Christian Bulgaria and the Roman Empire will continue. However, thanks to a century of amazing social and political change, his people would never be absorbed by their powerful neighbours. Conquered, perhaps, but their separate identity... Was secure. So, the Franks established a king led Christian civilization in Western Europe, but the Carolingians themselves were swept away. The Caliphate embedded Islam and its political culture even as the Abbasids were eased aside. Now we see that in the Balkans, a Christian culture took root. Byzantine administration, writing, and architecture were adopted, but Roman identity, and with it obedience to Constantinople, were formally rejected. The Serbs, Croats, and Bulgarians had formed identities and states to separate themselves from Roman dominance. Although the Byzantine Empire will expand to include the Balkans again one day, the people there will never see themselves as being brought back into the fold. Finally, I should just comment on nomenclature. In our history books, you may see it said that upon his conversion, Khan Boris became Tsar Michael of Bulgaria. You may remember that Michael III was his baptismal sponsor, and so he took his name. However, because of our lack of a Bulgarian history from this period, we don't really know if the titles changed on that day. Byzantine historians keep calling Simeon the Khan, or the Prince, for a little while longer. When our narrative resumes, Simeon is going to make a play for the title of Emperor, and so I will call him the Khan until he is officially crowned otherwise. For simplicity's sake, though, I will call his realm Bulgaria from now on. Before I go, let me recommend another podcast for you to check out. Uh, It's called Curious Minds, and it's run by uh, Ran Levy and his team. And they uh, like to discuss topics which curious minds might be interested in. And they do a lot of history, but they also uh, delve into science and technology. And so if you're interested in more recent history and uh, how some of the great incidents of uh, technological development over the last two or three hundred years have taken place, then they do some great episodes. Uh, I've been listening to one on the history of LSD, um, along with uh, others on, uh, you know, U-boat technology, and of course, our old favorite, the Black Death. Recently, they've also been interviewing uh, podcasters who helped grow this format into what it is today, uh, which has been fascinating too. So yeah, check out Curious Minds, Rand Levy and the team uh, are definitely delving into loads of interesting topics and doing a great job. Find the show in all the usual places or go to cmpod.net.